it, you know, we're going to be out of step with the nationalism that may be flowing freely from the rest of churches, and I'm not trying to be downgrading towards them. This is a significant day in history. Uh, this is a day in which we can be thankful that God, in His providence, saw fit to give um, men, our founders, uh, a desire to see a nation founded on biblical principle, uh, as much as that's trying to be now swallowed up in, um, you know, in history, the rewrite of history. <laughs> uh, our founders, many of them were believers. Uh, some were not. More seminarians were involved in the founding of this country than, than uh, people trained in any other field. So it's a little bit of a rewrite of history to say the church didn't, wasn't involved in things here. Very involved in the founding of this nation. John Adams, I was reading this morning, speaking about this nation, thanked God's providence that it was founded, and his prayer for this nation was that it would seek the freedom of those enslaved in the rest of humankind. I, I see in those words, maybe even about what, and way before his time, a man saying, we want others to experience our freedom, not only here but around the world. And so they saw themselves as pioneering they saw themselves as missionaries. Some of the earliest acts of Congress were voting to support missions work. I know that's a big contrast from today, right? You couldn't imagine a bill, appropriations bill being passed in the United States Congress today to support the printing of Bibles, the shipping of those Bibles all over the world, the, the funding of missions to the savages, as they were called, or the Indians. On this kind. I mean, it's, it's, it's there for us in history to study. And so I don't want to fall off into some kind of nationalism, which makes the, uh, everybody a little uncomfortable. But I do want to just pause before we go to the sermon and pray. Pray for our leaders. President Obama is uh, a man that has been placed in a position of power by the Lord Jesus. And the same Lord who placed him in power demands, calls as our duty, that we pray for him. That we don't pray on July the 4th and forget about it, but that we pray every day for him. That we not only pray for him, but for our Congress, and for our state leaders, and for our local civil uh, authorities. That we pray that God would use every decision they make to further his kingdom. Uh, and and so and to pray that God would free men, not only here but around the world, to hear the gospel. So I want to pray about that. I want to thank God for that. I also want to join in with uh, with our founders in uh, the spirit of missions. And you know, uh, Elizabeth went to Honduras and spent about a month, a little less, uh, working in orphanages there and with orphans. And now her sister Caitlin leaves this week to go and. Uh, and serve. And so we want to pray for Caitlin as she goes and uh, send her with Godspeed that God would multiply his kingdom through her work there. And we're going to be praying for you and praying you get out of Dallas, which seemed to be the hardest part of your sister's trip. And, uh, and so, uh, so we want to pray for that. And then we, we also want to pray uh, for those around the world who still today long for freedom like this. I think our founders would have been in a church on July the 4th. I think rather than toting the flag, they would have been bowing before the cross. Many of them would have been submitting themselves to Christ anew on a day like this. So let's pray for those who don't have that opportunity to gather locally in their fellowships and proclaim Christ. Let's pray together, and then, and then we'll go into the sermon. Father, we, uh, we are ignorant of our own history and this, to our own undoing, we now have people who are, um, you know, ignorant of our own founding documents, ignorant of the, the multitude of writings that were just poured out, the ink that was poured out in the early days of the colonies, in the early days of, of this nation that would show us that our forefathers had a great desire that your kingdom would be forwarded, 
first and foremost. And that people would be brought into a real knowledge of Jesus Christ, a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And God, we're now becoming less and less in touch with that. And that's our fault. That's not the government's fault. That's not uh, education's fault. That's our fault. That's, the, that's individualistic. We, Lord, are arrogant in our forgetting the past. And, uh, Lord, we repent of that and we ask that you would renew our hearts to know our history, our heritage, uh, and where we come from, that we might know the mistakes and we might know the successes and we might, in, under your providence, seek to extend your kingdom and be profitable. Lord, we, we ask that you would <coughs> be with President Obama. Lord, that he would be lifted up, that he would be surrounded, that he would be uh, overwhelmed with your grace, with your mercy. God, that you would bring him to a point of, of if he doesn't know you, that he would know you. If he, if, he, if he doesn't hear the gospel, God, would you put someone there to teach the true gospel to him? Lord, would you help him whether he comes to you in faith or not, or if he is in faith, whether he's, Lord, however that goes personally, we ask, God, that you would use him, our leader, use him in the world affairs that he's involved with all over the world, the most powerful human leader in the world, would you give him, God, wisdom to know how to bring about what is most profitable to our fellow man. That is, Lord, even if it's unknown to him, may his policies and his desires bring about your desires and your will. His heart is in your hand, and you turn it however you will. And so we pray, God, for him. We pray for wisdom. We pray for health. We pray for, uh, Lord, insight. Lord, we are arrogant to believe we even understand the issues that he faces each day. Help us, Lord, to be humble and to be prayerful. Lord, we pray for our Congress, our representatives, our senators. We pray for Senator Sessions and Shelby. Representative Rogers, Lord, as they labor every day uh, to represent this state, Lord, we ask that you would again energize these men towards knowing you, energize them towards making you known. And God, would you give them wisdom as they have to oversee the daily operation of our nation? Decisions, God, that, again, are far beyond us. Help us, God, to be mindful of them and of the others who gather in our capital each day to work. May you use them to bring about your will in this, in this nation. And Lord, we pray also for our local leaders, our state-level leadership. Lord, may we... Uh, not fall into the repugnant habit of using the Bible for our benefit, but God, that we would truly be men of the Bible as leaders and that our lives would reflect faith, hope in you, and wisdom that can only come from you. May we move beyond shallow proclamations and into heart-level changes that we would truly love our neighbor as ourself and it would come out in our policy. Only you can do this, and we trust that you can and that you will. Make us good citizens. Help us to know what is wise and duty to our nation, to our state. Lord, we pray not only for our nation on this day and thanking you for it, but we pray for those who are serving you. We thank you for Ryan and Teresa and their service in Haiti. What a, what a beautiful uh, testimony we have heard through them of your work in Haiti. And we pray it would continue. We pray, God, and pray for Caitlin as she leaves us now to go for 
several weeks to serve you, Lord, there in Honduras. We ask, God, that you would, that you would just use her in a real way. That she would see quickly how she's folded into the ministry that's already ongoing there. And she can be helpful to the, to the orphans, to the other missionaries. Encouraging. Give her a positive attitude. Give her strength. Protect her body from uh, disease or from sickness. And Lord, we pray that you would protect her mind from fear that might come over her. Lord, we ask God that you would just uh, help her to be bold in your name. And that you would be a bright light in that place. That they might see you through her. Lord, we pray for all of our brothers and sisters around the world who are unable to freely gather and worship. And we pray your freedom would be real to them. That even though they don't have an outward freedom of expression, they do have freedom in you. And help them, God, encourage them. And may we be an encouragement to them. Lord, we pray asking that you would use Grace Fellowship in this nation and around the world for your glory, for your kingdom. It's in your great name we pray. Amen. John chapter 21. We, uh, we finished the Resurrection Sermon Series. We've um, been there since Easter. We've been through John, 1 Corinthians 15. We've been through Romans 6 and how that applies to our baptism and our baptism in the Spirit, our baptism in the water, and how that paints a picture for us of our confession of Christ. And now we're shifting gears, I said last week, back to John. And believe it or not, I know we've bounced in and out and in and out, but believe it or not, after all these uh, many months and days and years, really, we're, we're, we're within three sermons, Lord willing, of being done with John, the Gospel of John, from a from a verse by verse standpoint, not done with it, uh, it'll hopefully continue to instruct us. But the journey through it will be finished. And um, <clears throat> you know, as you come to John 21, at least when I come there, it seems that there's a lot of surface things that had to be answered. Okay, and so I want to answer some of those without going into the, all the possibilities of what might be, but just to give you what I've gleaned and what I believe, and then I'll leave the rest to you. You could study the issues on your own. There's a lot of material out there, a ton of opinion about this chapter, and I'm not going to get into that or we'll never get to the sermon, but I do want to handle some of those because I think some of you will come in contact with it. It could be discouraging to you could call you into question on some things. First of all, if you look at John 20, 30 through 31, it looks as if John has completed his letter, his gospel. He, he gives the purpose of the writing, and it looks like a nice, neat ending there. You note that. And then John 21 starts. And you wonder, that's odd. You know, in modern, when you, when you get the last purpose statement of a book nowadays, it's over. You know, and here it starts over again. He starts up another story. It looks misplaced, doesn't it? At least it does to me, initially. But then when you dig a little bit, you see that in 1 John 5.13, you can write that down, there's a similar statement to John 20's 30-31 statement. And yet in 1 John 5.13, he's not at the end of the letter. He launches right into another statement about the Beloved. And encourages them on another matter. And so, we might be seeing a pattern. As I was talking with Dave about it this morning. We could be seeing that John states his purpose where he sees fit to state the purpose. Where it fits in his mind, in his concept of what he's trying to communicate. It doesn't necessarily bring an end to whatever he's writing. But he's placed it where he thinks it's most effective. And now he's supporting it. He moves on to tell another story to support further his uh, propositions and his teachings. But you know, some have been led to think maybe somebody else wrote John 21. Maybe it was added years later. The pro there's a lot of problems with that. There's some positives. There's some negatives to every theory. One of the biggest problems I find is we don't have any surviving manuscripts where, except for you know, pretty much no manuscript evidence that would tell us that. In other words, you know there's copies of the text. 
and we have them. We don't have the originals. We have the copies. And when you look at the copies that we have, there's not a John 20 ending. They all have John 21. Now, that's not conclusive. Obviously, there's time that's passed between the originals and the copies. But at the very least, it indicates it was added early if it was added. And why would it be added at all? Well, we, we look at the purpose for him writing John 21. One of the purposes being that there was a misunderstanding There was a misunderstanding. What was the misunderstanding over? The misunderstanding was that John would live until Jesus came again. You see it in John 21. If you look at John 21, Peter asks, what about him? What about this man? And Jesus says in verse 22, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And then we in 23 see what? That the word was spread around among the brethren that John would live until Jesus came again. But John says that's not what he said. That's not what he said. And so maybe some would say John comes back later now that this rumor has started to spread. He's getting old. He's about to die. And he says, listen, let me clear an issue up for you. And so he writes John 21, but separate from his original writing. Now, why do I say all of this? Because critical scholars will take this and you'll get a hold of them on, you think, well, I'm never going to read a critical commentary. You don't have to any longer. Just watch the History Channel. Just watch popular ABC stories about the Bible, and you get critical scholarship front and center as if it is the only way to view God's Word. And what they're going to do with that, what critical scholars will do with this is say, see, John didn't even write John's Gospel. John didn't write it. It's not inspired. This is a collection of men writing truths or things as they see them. It's a very man-centered authorship. We don't believe that at all. God wrote His Word through His men. They were inspired by Him to write the Word. And I believe John wrote it. I believe he, he wrote it for a purpose. And I hope over the next couple of weeks we're going to see His purpose. This morning I hope to see the main purpose. John 21 through 14, the message entitled, Do You Love Jesus? I believe John wrote it, and I believe he wrote it with this in mind. Don't assume that you love Jesus. Know that you love Him. Know that you love Him. And he gives it to us in a narrative. And I, you may love narratives. I love stories, and I'm a storyteller by nature. love to tell stories uh, all the time. But stories are problematic when we begin to preach. I'm telling you, if you go get the leading commentaries on the book of John, you get to John 21. Buddy, you get some far-fetched ideas about what John 21 is really all about. I'm talking about uh, every little line or sentence has a deeper meaning to it than what it was written in. And that's the danger with narrative, isn't it? We don't really know what to do with it. If I was being completely honest with you, what I should do is keep you in here until I finish this entire chapter. Because that's how it was written. It was written so that you would get the whole story, that you would get from that story one, maybe two main points. Not that you would see... John writing on one level and then underneath that a lot of allegory about the church or future history. That's not at all what John 21 is. John 21 is a historical event and John's telling this for a purpose. So I'm not going to keep you here in one sermon. We're going to try to do it in two. Um, And I want to cover the main bulk of the sermon today and it's going to be a reading of the text and an explanation of the text. That's the main thing here. When we finish the reading of the text, we're almost done today. Okay? Then I just want to bring out, I want to emphasize the middle section for you because I think that's the point of the story. If you want to know, the point of the whole John 21 comes from verses 15 through 19. Everything on either side is like brackets to set up what he's trying to tell us in 15 through 19. Okay, so let's read the text together. And let's just make some observations as we read. After this... Now, this is not immediately after John 20. This is just John's way of transitioning, 
Okay. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, Galilee, a hundred miles from Jerusalem. I bring that up only to tell you this didn't happen like one day Peter woke up and he was in Jerusalem and he was being a disciple and he said, hey, let's go fishing. No, no, no. This was a very methodical. Peter had planned out and thought about what was going to happen in his life post the resurrection, okay? He's seen Jesus, Luke tells us, already one time. We don't know anything about that encounter. I'd like to know. I think I would like to know. The Spirit didn't think I needed to know. Didn't think you needed to know. So I'm not going to venture a guess about how that went, but can you imagine Peter, the great denier, standing in front of the resurrected Lord the first time? But Peter, after that, and after being in the upper room where Jesus appeared on two occasions, still he makes a plan, doesn't he? And we get it in John 21. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of the disciples were together in Galilee. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. Now this isn't, again, let's think about this. This isn't like you saying to your son, Hey, Johnny, you want to go catch a few fish? This isn't us bank fishing, as the old black preacher put it. We're not sitting on the bank with a cane pole, casting a line, getting it wet, relaxing, chilling out, enjoying the country music playing in the background kind of setting. When Peter says, I'm going fishing... What he seems to be saying is, I failed at being a disciple. I'm a denier. I know God loves me, but I'm going back to what I know how to do. I don't know how to be a real apostle. I don't know how to be a real disciple. But I absolutely know how to catch fish. I know how to do that so well that I've made a great living at it. Simon Peter was a great fisherman. He had a profitable business. He had a family. He had children, all in Galilee. And what he did was put a plan together that said, I failed at one thing, but I'm not a failure. I'm going to move on. I'm going to serve God in my profession. It's what I do. I fish. I'm a fisherman. So he says, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. We notice that most of them from other texts, our fishermen also, not all of them, but most of them, it says in other texts, were also fishermen. They went out and got into the boat. But they didn't catch anything. So what he's good at, he's not being successful at. He's frustrated. Where do I get his frustration from? Look at the answer. Jesus then is on the seashore. Now they don't know it's Jesus. The dawn is coming. This is just that twilight time between the sun being up all the way. It's that hazy time of the day. They're a hundred yards off of the shore. And there's a voice which cries out to them over the water. Children, do you have any fish? It's an assumptive, by the original language, it's an assumptive that they don't have any fish. You ever been fishing? I mean, not even as a commercial fisherman. Not even like the most dangerous catch, right? You've just been fishing and you pass the other boat and what, is the, what, do, what do they say? Caught anything? Fishermen hate that unless they've caught the trophy, you know? Nope. Look at, the, look at their response. No. No explanation. No, we almost had one. No, no not yet, but we're going to catch some. Just no. No. How, how are we to think about their fishing enterprise in that day? We think about rivers, muddy, in this part of the country. That's not at all what they're doing. In Galilee, in the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee, the fishing wasn't a chance encounter. A good fisherman knew the weather. He knew how it would affect fish. He knew where fish would go. He fished in clear water. Most of the time when they launched a boat, they went to where the fish were. They knew where they were. They went at night so the fish couldn't see them because the water's so clear, and they cast their nets 
knowing they would bring in a haul of fish. What am I saying that for? Remember I said he failed at being a disciple, so I think he went back to doing what he felt he could do. And now he can't even do that very well. No fisherman launched in that day expecting to come home with nothing. Okay? The question was how big a haul of fish you were going to have. And yet they go to their normal place where the fish would have been in this time of the year, in this temperature, with this prevailing wind. They went exactly where they knew the fish should be and they cast their nets all night long to no avail. And now somebody on the shore, they're not sure who, says, Hey guys, you haven't caught any fish? No. Embarrassment. Frustration. Now, in the minute of their frustration, the rookie on the shore says, cast your nets on the other side, to the right side of the boat. And you will find some. How irksome. There's nothing worse than going fishing and striking out than fishing and having someone tell you how to catch a fish and where to catch it. I mean, I've been there. I know that. That's frustrating. You know? And these are, I'm just a every now and then casual fisherman. These are professionals. Now this stranger on the seashore after they've labored all night long at what they should be able to do without any effort, without any trouble. They should have hauled a, hauled a fish and went home. Now the sun's coming up and this stranger asked them if they've caught fish. No, he hadn't caught any. And he dares to say, hey, put your net right over there and you'll catch fish. But they do it. They cast their nets over. I don't know. I don't want to read into it, but they cast their nets over. And all of a sudden, there's a tug against the net. There's a haul of fish. You see that? Not one, not two. We're going to later find out there's 153 fish. Large fish. Humility, a dose of humility, working hard all night, catching nothing. And now this stranger says, just put your net over there, you'll catch some. And 153 large fish in the net. So much so they can't even bring it to the boat. It's so heavy. Immediately when the disciple who Jesus loved heard this, he said to Peter, when he heard what was said and he saw what had happened, he said, it is the Lord. Why? Because Luke tells us there was another time they were on the sea and they hadn't caught any fish. And Jesus showed up and what did he say? Put your net on the other side. You'll catch some fish. It's not the same story. It's two distinct stories. And immediately there, John, the beloved disciple as he's called here, knows this is Jesus. And Peter, Simon Peter, don't you love Peter? I mean, of all the characters of the New Testament, especially the apostles, you love Peter, don't you? Paul, not so much. You respect and revere Paul, right? If Paul walked into the congregation here, I imagine everyone standing up and saluting, right? The general, as he barked orders and everybody said, yes, sir. If Peter walks in, you might not even notice him as being a real strong leader in any spiritual way. Just this big, honking, strapping man's man. You might look at Peter and think, dude, I'd like to get to know that guy. If we get in a brawl today, I want him on my side. I mean, you know, you might make some observations like that. But you not necessarily say, this guy, he's our leader spiritually. And you, we think that way, why? Because he's so much like us, isn't he? He wants to be strong. He wants to be a leader. He wants to do what's right. He says the right things only to back it up with no action. Failure. Time and time and time again. 
He even gets rebuked several times by the Lord from his quick answer without much thought or reflection at the heart level. And here he is again. There you see it in the text. No doubt this is Peter. This wasn't anybody else among the seven that could have acted this way. I mean, you're in a boat. Go to shore, right? No, what does Peter do? He jumps in probably, you know, waist deep, chest deep, half swimming, half struggling, clothes on to get to the shore. Just, you're in a boat. Just go to shore. I, I don't know this. This is total speculation. But as I study the text, I think the rest of the guys probably beat him there. The boat came in faster than he did. That's how I kind of imagine it in my mind. It doesn't say that, but I just kind of imagine it. It doesn't tell us who got there first. It just makes it more like Peter to me. He's soaking wet now, standing in front of Jesus. (laughs) I mean, you just got to love Peter. He's a failure. He's not only a failure of being a disciple. He now can't even fish right. He's humbled. He's not only denied Christ now, he's told by Jesus how to catch fish, which he should have known just from his training, his upbringing. He's a bombastic. He speaks too fast. He acts too quickly. He overreacts often. He's really not the kind of guy that you want to emulate. You just find yourself emulating him often. In so many ways. He's Simon Peter. He's still a little bit of that pebble, isn't he? Not quite firm. Not quite sure. Not quite a success. He knows he's supposed to be a rock. Jesus has told him he would be, but he's, he's still in the throes of becoming something, isn't he? So how's it with you? You've maybe you haven't gone fishing, but you've gone back to being a salesman. Or maybe you've settled into a life of being a housewife. Or maybe you're trying to be really good at teaching because you're gifted at it. And you don't find a lot of purpose or significance in it. You're really frustrated there. And like Peter, you just... You're unsure about everything. I tried my hand at being strong for the Lord and I failed. Publicly failed. I'm trying to do my old way of living and I fail at that. And Jesus, and we're going to get there, I don't want to get there too quick, but Jesus is now not just simply letting you off the hook. As with Peter, he's saying, Do you love me? When you're an abject failure at being a wife, a husband, a businessman, a disciple, a teacher, a manual laborer, a band director, when you're a failure in everything in your life, do you love me? That becomes the question. So the others came in and they drag in net full of fish and they're about 100 yards offshore when they start in. And verse 9 says, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fireplace with fish laid on it and bread. He doesn't even need their fish. I don't know where his fish came from. Doesn't tell us. Maybe he made them. Maybe he brought them in a satchel. Could have come from anywhere. The point is, they show up after all their hard work and now catching this great haul of fish only to find the master already has fish. It's not that he needed what we did. It's already cooked. It's already ready. But he says, bring some of your fish that you just caught. So Simon Peter having swam in soaking wet, now standing before the Lord before he says anything to the Lord or the Lord says anything to him, immediately goes and gets some fish. 
and brings them over. And there were 153 of them. And here again, you read the commentaries and there's tons of opinion. And I just simply think there was just, they were like any good fisherman, they counted what they caught. There's a partnership involved here. There's seven of them. It's got to be divided somehow. So they counted them. That's logical. And so there were 153. And they were very large. And the nets didn't break this time. They did in Luke, but they didn't this time. And Jesus has them bring some and join it in with his, or maybe he didn't. We don't really know, do we? There's lots of questions here that our mind would like to chase. But we don't find answers in the text. So it must not be his main point. He's building the scene. You're a failure, Peter. You're not only a failure at being a disciple, you're a failure at your own job and your own calling. You're a failure. You're humbled. I don't really have to have anybody's work. I'm Christ. He's building. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. That gentle way of Jesus. He's inviting these who have turned their back on him in the past to come sit down with him and eat a meal. The most intimate way to relate with friends. They all denied him. Don't ever get in mind that Peter was the only denier. They all denied him. They did it privately. Peter did it publicly, but they did it. And don't ever let yourself off the hook. You've been a denier too. And yet, what does Jesus say to these deniers? Come eat with me. Come have a meal with me. Let's sit down. Let's eat. None of the disciples asked, who are you? Because they knew it was Jesus. I mean, he's made it look a little different. It's so much so that Mary Magdalene struggles to really know him at first. And they struggle to know him at first. But it's still Jesus and they know it is. So I don't really go into questions about that. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. No Eucharistic meal. Just a meal. Just friends. Just sitting around a campfire. Just friendship that goes even deeper than denial. You don't have to find some deep, dark meaning. It's there on the surface, isn't it? I mean, it's amazing that Jesus wants to eat with these guys. They left him at his moment of need. And yet he's serving them food. Again, he's their servant. They're not serving him. He's serving them. What a beautiful picture is coming about about Jesus. And so we come down and it says... This is, was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. He was revealed to them. He didn't walk in often. He just appeared and possibly just appeared here. We don't know exactly, but he was revealed to the disciples. Obviously, there's been more revealing going on, but to all of the disciples or a large group of the disciples, this is the third time since his resurrection. And now to the point of the text. Let's read it and then make two observations. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after that say, uh, saying, he said to him, follow me. Two things. This being the crucial moment of John 21. The scene set. The question before us, do you love me? Now let's think through. First of all, we see that we are all going to fail the Lord in discipleship. It's not a matter of will we. It's a matter that we, we, we definitely will fail in our discipleship. When we look at this text, we see 
what is commonly referred to here is, is a sermon on the three questions focusing on, on the use of the word love. It makes for great preaching. This is not textual, I don't think. First thing we must see is that they weren't speaking to one another in Greek. They were speaking to one another in Aramaic. And they're sitting around that fire and Jesus is questioning him. The, the words agapeo and phileo are not probably in use. That's the first thing we see. And secondly, these words are interchanged in Greek. They're not some higher meaning to one than the other. So there's been a lot of fodder, a lot of preaching done on this text about that switching and changing that goes on. Jesus is saying, Peter, do you love me the way God loves you? And then Peter's saying, Lord, you know I love you like a brother, the best I humanly can. And then this interchange again, and then the final one, Jesus agreeing with Peter, you're doing the best you can do. No, no. That's not what this text is teaching us at all. What it's teaching us is Peter failed. Publicly failed three times, didn't he? And it's recorded for us in John's Gospel. In John 13, verses 36 through 38, Peter famously at the upper room supper says to Jesus, even if everyone else forsakes you, Lord, I will not forsake you. And he says, Peter, before the night ends, you will deny me three times. The cock will crow to confirm this to you. You're going to fail, Peter. You're going to fail. You almost see God's mercy in it, don't you? Don't be derailed by it. Don't be caught off guard by it, Peter. Don't put too much confidence in yourself, Peter. Be humble. Realize Satan's sifting you. I'm praying for you. You're going to fail, but you're not going to fall completely. And then we have the recording in John 18, 15 through 27. Of the denials. Three times. And now sitting around with his seven, six of his closest friends, Jesus asked him three questions about love. Three times the same question about love. Do you love me? The first time, maybe it goes without Peter understanding it completely. Yeah, Lord, you know I love you. Then the second time, do you love me? Yes, I love you. You know I love you. I think in Peter there rises this this angst of I hope he doesn't ask me again. Why do I say that? Because the text says that's what he was grieved by. Not that he switched the use of the words for love, but that he asked the third time, do you love me? And when he asked the third time, I can't help but think that Peter flashes back in his mind to his denials. His utter, complete failure as a disciple. Treason of the highest sort. And it's right here in front of him. And it grieves him. And so we are going to fail. Some of you have already failed. You're sitting in the back, in a sense, in, in metaphorically speaking, you're sitting in the back of Christianity. The back of the line. You're just hoping nobody recognizes you. Because you don't see yourself as successful in being a Christian. You're not a good disciple. And you just hope everybody just kind of gives you the pass and lets you go through. And can I just tell you this? Jesus will not give you the pass. That's not mercy. Jesus is going to, in some circumstance, in some way, He's going to bring before you your failure as His disciple. Not in a condemning way. Not in a hateful way, not in a spiteful way, but in a real way. And you're going to be facing it, staring down the barrel of it. I'm a failure. So not only will we might fail, we will fail. And when we fail, Jesus isn't just going to give us a pass. It's going to come to us. In discipline, in love, He will bring it before us. And we see it with the way He treated Peter. So He questions him. And Peter answers him affirmatively. Yes, Lord, you know I love you. And then we're faced with this. That Jesus will never fail to forgive us. And he will never fail to establish us 
for his purposes. Listen. You're a failure. If you don't know it yet, it's coming. Not only are you a failure at your job, being a husband or a wife, being a father to your children, being a son or daughter to your mother or father, not only are you a failure as a friend, you're going to fail the Lord. You're human. You will fail. And what we tend to do in our humanness is fade then to the back. We shut our mouth. We metaphorically sit on the back row and we just kind of coast to the finish line and say, I'm useless. I'm a failure. God doesn't want people like me. And all I'm saying to you today is that's what Peter was doing, I think. He was now ready, having failed, to say, you know what, I'm going to go back to fishing. I'm going to do what I know I can do. I'm going to do it as well as I can do it. I'm going to love God, but I'm just not going to be the preacher I thought I was going to be a few weeks ago, a few months ago. I'm just going to kind of fade out here. And the other six guys say, yeah, that's a good idea, Peter. We'll go with you. Let's go do that. God needs good businessmen anyway, doesn't he? Somebody's got to make money. And so exit the ministry on to another kind of ministry. Sitting on the back row, hoping life passes us by and we can just get to the eternal reward, right? And then Jesus shows up and Jesus holds in front of us our failure. And we're at in a moment of grief. It hurts. It pains us. It brings back our failure. And he's not doing it because he hates us. He's not doing it because he judges us, condemns us. He's going to forgive us. He forgives Peter. Publicly. He forgives him, treats him like a brother, and he establishes him for his purpose. Now, here's the connection for the purpose statement. Feed my sheep. Right? You see it there? Or tend my sheep. Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. Three statements. One purpose. Be a pastor. Peter, you are a failure. In your flesh, you denied me. You're never going to be perfect. But you are called to be a pastor. Be a pastor. Don't just say you love me and sit on the back row and fish and give to the church. Go to the front of the line, Peter, and be a leader. Be a pastor. Something's missing from the text. And maybe you didn't see it. John, it's missing from God, John's gospel. There's no great commission. It's in the other gospels, but it's not in John's gospel. Or maybe it is. Maybe it is. Maybe it's feed my sheep. Tend to my lambs. Feed my sheep. Why do I say that? Because you are a failure. I'm a failure. We're common, everyday people. We've failed all across the board. And we, in our flesh, want to sit back and just let it pass us. And Jesus comes and holds our failure in front of us so that he might forgive us and establish us for his purpose, which is the Great Commission. So you you see, the Great Commission is not about far-flung shores where the gospel only, it's not only about far-flung shores and people who've never heard about Jesus, though it is about them, it's about you. And it's about me. And it's all about failures being told they still have a purpose. And the purpose is to shepherd For Peter, the purpose is to pastor, to shepherd. For you, in your home, it is the shepherd. In your place of business, it is the shepherd young disciples. As women at home, it's to gather other women for prayer and shepherding. The Great Commission is not accomplished only through going to the other side of the world. 
It's accomplished through local congregations realizing that we have been commissioned. You and I. You say, I'm a failure. So was Peter. I'm not real good at it. Neither was Peter. Open mouth, insert foot. That's Peter. I'm better at doing something else. If Peter thought he was too. God doesn't want to use people like me. Sure he does. Sure he does. Not only does he want to, he is using people like you. So I want to encourage you as we close. I want to encourage you that what the Lord is doing is taking normal, everyday failures. Transforming them by grace and giving them purpose. No one should leave. No one should go home and say, I'm too far gone. No one should leave and say, I don't have a purpose. No one should leave and say, well, that was for Peter, not for me. No, no. No, no. So we have failures here. We have some of you are stinging from failures, both real and immediate. I mean, you not only failed in the past, you failed recently. Some morally, some spiritually, some privately. My encouragement through this passage would be Christ is bringing you to himself. He's going to hold the failure up and forgive it. Not because you deserve it, but because he's merciful, because he's loving, because he's gentle. He's not going to forgive you and make you second class. No, he tends to give you purpose. I don't know what your purpose specifically realm you will live that purpose out in, but I do know the purpose, and it is the Great Commission, each of us. Peter did shepherd, and we see him, and we're going to talk about it next week. He did shepherd the rest of his life. He did die for Christ as a martyr. What took him from the denier to the martyr? John 21. In other words, there's nothing, there is mystical things happening, supernatural things happening, but God doesn't want to leave it as some guesswork. How did he go from that to this? He tells us. It's the same way you will go from failure to being used in his kingdom. He will forgive you. He will establish you in his purpose. Let's pray. Father, come humbly.